Our second reading for today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, beginning with the 38th verse. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn, also, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here ends our reading. Now please pray with me. Most holy and loving God, we pray that you would send your spirit upon us this morning, that in these words we might hear your word. Amen. Well, this morning, we get to tackle the final portion of this fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And I use the word tackle intentionally, because this is one of those texts that requires us to do some serious wrestling with the words of Jesus. Without a doubt, these are iconic Jesus phrases. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. They are famous words, and justifiably so. But they're anything but easy if we take them with even the slightest degree of seriousness. They put forth an ethic of Christian behavior that, if we're honest, most Christians ignore far more often than not. This past week, I was flipping through a book of my great mentor, Peter Gomes, the longtime minister at Harvard. The final chapter of his book, entitled The Good Life, focuses on the Christian calling to love, the same calling we find here in Matthew 5. Peter goes into exhaustive detail about how self-avowed Christians can be some of the least loving people out there. And I'm sure that's something that we've all experienced at one time or another. When Peter Gomes came out of the closet, he received, as he said, the nastiest letters from other Christians who condemned him with the most unforgiving language. No love there. Peter points out how it was Christians of the American South who lynched black people. These, folks, these were folks who went to church every Sunday and yet found themselves driven by hate to maintain the terror state of the American South against black Americans. Later in the same chapter, he tells the story of, the English bishop, of his discussions with the English bishop, John A.T. Robinson, who wrote the book, Honest to God. Peter told, how Rob, Peter told Robinson how much he appreciated this book of classic uh, this classic contemporary of liberal, a uh, classic book of contemporary liberal theology. Robinson responded how he wished he had never written the book because of all the hatred that he received from other Christians 
for merely pointing out some of the difficulties in classic Christian orthodoxy. Robinson laid out what he saw was the truth, and he was skewered for it. Again, Christians seem to have a problem with putting this command to love into action. So if we're honest to God, so to speak, we have to admit that most Christians, including all of us here, don't take the words in Matthew 5 all that seriously. These words of Jesus are tough. Loving others isn't easy under the best of circumstances. Loving your enemies, now that's, that's really hard. Turning the other cheek, giving to whoever asks, this is rough stuff, Jesus. What do we do with these verses? Other than, putting them on, other than putting them in a nice needlepoint and hanging them on the wall. How do we live them out? How are we supposed to interpret them? Interpreters have taken different approaches to this famous text through the ages. One well-known approach is to say that the expectations of Jesus in this text are intentionally unachievable. We can never be perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. We can never always turn the other cheek or love our enemies. The text, according to these interpreters, is meant to show us how we fall short, and therefore, it shows us that we need salvation from God. We cannot achieve salvation on our own. As we try and fail to live up to Jesus' standards in Matthew 5, we come to realize how much of a sinner we are. We need atonement from God. As common as this interpretation has been through the ages, especially in evangelical Protestant sects, I'm not sure that it's true to the context that we have here in the Sermon on the Mount. Do we really think that Jesus is laying out an impossible ethic that we're not supposed to follow? Does it make sense that Jesus preached an impossible message to those who were there on the Sermon on the Mount? After all, Jesus' listeners had never read through Romans, the classic New Testament text on justification, because Romans had never been written. Hadn't even been written. They hadn't read Luther or Anselm or any number of other perspectives that talk about atonement. It doesn't make any sense to think that Jesus was setting us up to fail, given the context that we find here. So if we're actually meant to follow these commands of Jesus, what do they look like? Any thoughts? Another common approach to this text is to argue that it lays out a program of nonviolent resistance. Perhaps you've heard this interpretation before. The scholar Walter Wink famously wrote that turning the other cheek is actually a sign of resistance. In the ancient world, you would strike an inferior with the back of your hand. When you turn the other cheek, you force your assailant to strike you with, the, with his palm, which supposedly is reserved for social equals. In other words, you are signaling to someone who wants to treat you like an inferior that he must treat you as a peer. This interpretation has always struck me as a little bit weak, I have to be honest. I mean, after all, you're being hit in the face by another person. (laughs) But Wink's larger point is well taken. By not resisting, you expose the violence of the aggressor, and therefore non-resistance can lead to winning out in the end. Most people who interpret the passage in this framework of non-violent resistance cite the example of Gandhi in India or of Martin Luther King Jr. here in the U.S., By using nonviolent resistance, these figures exposed the brutal violence of the British in India and the white power structure of the American South. In this interpretation, the passage is not about submitting to violence or an impossible ideal. It's about using nonviolence and the power of love to come out on top and break the cycle of violence. The problem with this interpretation, as attractive as it seems, that is, after you're finished being hosed down by Bull Connor and his thugs, is that things don't always work out as planned. 
nonviolent resistance is trickier than it sounds. When I was in eighth grade, I was deep into my reading of the Bible. The book that made the biggest impression on me was the Gospel of Matthew. I did my best to take it to heart. One thing I particularly tried to live into was the call to nonviolence. Well, one of my classmates, Ago Bele, got wind of my newfound faith and figured it would be fun to test me. So he decided during class to jab me from time to time with a pen in the ribs to elicit a response. I calmly ignored him. And as any eighth grader would, he didn't stop. Poke, 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 poke. My noble act of nonviolence did not do anything to shame him into right action. Now, since poking me with a pen seemed to go over well, Aga decided to take his aggressions one step further. He began to take portions of my lunch. Every day, as we sat at the table, the tables of the Roxbury Latin Refectory, Aga would look over what my mother had carefully packed for my lunch and took what he wanted. I wasn't sure how Jesus would expect me to respond, but I chose not to resist an evildoer, as Matthew 5 commands. I wanted to practice my faith. Well, each day, he took part of my lunch. And I began to ask my mother to pack a little extra food to accommodate Aga's theft. (laughs) Although, I've never told her about this until now. (laughs) This, This lunch stealing carried on for several months, yes, months, before a teacher at lunchtime spotted Aga stealing my food and insisted that he return it to me. This teacher then asked how long this had been going on. I told the truth, and Aga was severely reprimanded by my teacher. Now, is this what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5? Looking back on it, I'm not so sure. As I read Matthew 5 today, the crux of the whole passage, for me anyway, is verse 44. This seems to be the key place to focus our interpretive efforts because it sums up Jesus' approach. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That verse is, by my reading, the most difficult verse of them all, and the others could be interpreted through the lens of that one verse. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The biblical scholar John Meyer looked in depth at this verse to determine if it came from the historical Jesus himself or potentially from some other source. After all, the call to love others is common in many religions and philosophical traditions. But when Meyer looked at as many possible parallels as he could find in the Old Testament, in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other non-biblical sources, in in the philosophy of his day, nowhere... In none of his research did he find the phrase, love your enemies. There are plenty of calls to love your neighbor, but this is the only instance that Meyer could find where people are told to actually love their enemies. Since this comes up nowhere else, Meyer concludes that it likely comes from the mouth of Jesus himself. This is Jesus speaking directly to us. So what exactly does this key line mean? Love your enemies. What's going on here? Famously, Scholars have made a distinction among three different types of love in Greek. One type of love is eros. Eros involves passion, desire, emotion, ardor. It can include sexual passion and love, but just as often it does not. Interestingly, eros never appears in the New Testament and only rarely appears in the writings of the church fathers. A second type of love is philia, which is used most frequently with the love or affection that you have for a friend. Also, if you love to do something then you would use the verb form of philia. Philio, the verb form, can also mean to kiss someone as an act of friendship. The verb is used when Judas kisses Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Against these two types of love is the much more common form, a much more common word, agape. 
Agape means esteem, affection, or regard for someone. It's also used when no, when no specific individual is referenced, a general feeling of love. It is used to describe the way God loves humanity or God loves Christ. Scholars have linked this type of love with the love we find in the Old Testament, and specifically with the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed means to love or have concern for someone without regard uh, or expectation of getting anything in return. It was used in the ancient Near East for treaty obligations as well. You swore fealty to a ruler. When you swore fealty to a ruler, you showed love to that person. In other words, when Jesus says we should love our enemies, he does not mean necessarily having strong, positive emotions for them. We don't get all mushy for our enemies. They are not our friends. Love here is about wanting the best for them without regard of what they will give you in return. It's about having loyalty for their well-being. But even this, this nuanced view of loving your enemies, is anything but easy to do. Think about it. Think for a moment about those people who you would consider to be your enemies. Perhaps it's someone here in church. Perhaps someone in church drives you crazy. He or she somehow manages to do things that really get under your skin. You have a hard time sitting in meetings with that person. When that person speaks, you find it difficult to listen to what the person is actually saying because of your deep-seated animosity towards that person. I know that never happens at FCC, but let's say it does, hypothetically. (laughs) Maybe it's someone you look down your nose at. You don't think highly of that person. You wish that person would just keep his or her mouth shut. Think of what it would take to love that person. To wish them nothing but the best. To show loyalty or affection to them and their well-being. Or consider the enemy you might have in your workplace. That person who always seems out to get you. This person constantly tries to undermine you in front of your boss or in front of others. Perhaps that person got a raise or promotion that you didn't get because he or she cut corners or took credit for something you did. How can you love that person? Or think of the enemy in your own family. Maybe it's the sibling who is lazy and takes advantage of the rest of the family. The person who can't be trusted. The one person you wish didn't show up to family gatherings. Or perhaps he or she is ostracized from the family already, and for good reason. What would it take to love that person? Or to love an ex, an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend or an ex-spouse? All those years of bad deeds and ill will run through your mind. Can you actually love that person? This is not easy stuff coming from Jesus. These days we live in a particularly heated political climate. This is especially true in an election year. Think of your enemy in a political sphere. If you're a Republican, perhaps it's Nancy Pelosi or Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. Every time that name is mentioned, you bristle with emotion, negative emotion. If you're a Democrat, perhaps that person is Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell. You can't hear the name of Trump without getting angry and being filled with hatred. This is something I was really wrestling with this past week. I'm someone who, uh, as you've probably figured out over the weeks and months, is not a huge fan of our current president. And I had to watch this past week as he bullied a federal judge and worked to undermine the justice system on behalf of his cronies. He pardoned people who are shamelessly corrupt, some of whom will undoubtedly benefit or contribute to his re-election campaign. It was difficult for me this past week to read the news accounts of what President Trump was doing and not get really, really angry. He stands for everything politically and personally that I detest. How can I love Donald Trump? 
On Tuesday evening, I had to watch some of my friends go after one another on Facebook for the candidates that they are supporting for the Democratic nomination for president. These online debates got personal and very nasty. There's this incredible toxicity in our political climate today that disturbs me on the deepest level. I was so worked up on Tuesday night over this that I thought to myself that if the president wins re-election, I might want to leave my job and move to another country. Not because I can't stand the United States anymore or because I think the U.S. will be doomed, but because I just can't stand the hatred in our nation anymore. I don't want to be around it. It's poisoning to my soul. It poisons my relationships with people around me and makes me into a person that I don't want to be. In my lifetime, I've never considered doing something like this. Then I return to these words of Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What if I was someone who was facing real persecution? Could I love my oppressor? Is that even possible or advisable? If there's any word of Jesus, any passage that has the most relevance for our lives today, I would say it has to be this passage. We need to hear these words of Jesus for our own souls. But wow, how difficult it is to hear them and to act on them. What are we to do, honestly? This is where I'm grateful for the work of Anthony DeMello and the classes that we've had recently on his book, on his work. In addition to the book that we read in adult Christian education class, Awareness, DeMello also wrote a book entitled The Way to Love. In that book, he has a chapter on this very verse of Jesus's, Love Your Enemies. DeMello challenges us when we feel irritated or annoyed or hateful towards someone to ask ourselves not what is wrong with that other person, But what does this irritation tell me about myself? Think for a moment about that shift in perspective. It's not about our enemy, but why our enemy elicits such strong emotions for us. What's going on within us? DeMello claims that the source of our hatred and animosity is in us. It's not about what the other person does. The other person is simply being the other person. That person is undoubtedly flawed and is likely doing things that you see as wrong. But it's worthwhile asking why his or her actions bother you as much as they do. DeMello suggests that one reason you find someone to be so irritating is the other person is doing things that you might do yourself. Even if she or he is not doing something you do, even if that person is doing something wrong, you're much more likely to change that person's behavior by letting go of your own irritation, your strong feelings. Your own hatred only ends up harming you without causing any real benefit. With DeMello's insights, I thought I would try and take a look at a specific example. Now, I could use someone that I know, but then that might expose me to (laughs) some public embarrassment in this setting. Uh, So for argument's sake, I figured it was at least semi-objective to look at my own anger with President Trump. Why is it that he makes me so angry? Why does he get under my skin and bring out toxicity within me? One reason that I perceive is that he is breaking the rules. He's violating conventions, like an independent judiciary or the Department of Justice's objectivity. But if the system allows him to violate these norms, maybe that should tell me about something, maybe that should tell me something about the nature of the system. The system needs to be fixed so it can't be abused. Trump is only doing something that the system allows him to get away with. Another reason why I get so angry with Trump is his apparent attacks on the poor and marginalized. 
His administration is proposing major cuts to programs that poor people rely on. His administration's actions at the southern border are cruel and unchristian, in my view. He has no apparent sympathy for those who are struggling to make ends meet or those fleeing violence to make a better life in the United States. Meanwhile, his, his policies disproportionately benefit those who are wealthy and privileged. If I were to take DeMello's approach, I would ask myself, why should I expect any better of Donald Trump? He inherited his wealth, and therefore he has little sympathy for those who are unlike him. He gets his information about anti-poverty programs not from those who benefit from them, or from the experts who work in poverty work, but from think tanks and particularly from ideological sources. Can I really expect him to know any different? Trump grew up in a racist society and has a long history of racism. Should I be surprised if he continues to see brown and black people as the other? Donald Trump's a human being. He's a flawed human being, but he's also someone who's the product of his environment. In the same way, I am a flawed human being who's the product of my environment. I might think he is wrong, but I gain nothing by hating him or getting angry with him. It's a challenge for me, but I think it's possible. It's interesting to note that the rationale that Jesus gives for loving our enemies, he says that God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. In God's eyes, we are all human beings. We are all flawed. Some do worse things than others do, but God responds with love just the same. It seems that's exactly what Jesus wants us to do. Human beings are human beings. Look around you, even here in this meeting house. It's pretty obvious we're far from perfect. But can we see other people as flawed people and still be okay with that on some level? Can we release ourselves of all the expectations that others will be great all the time, or even good? Can we wish the best for one another, even when we don't like one another? Can we be aware of our own emotions and do our best to hold them in check and see them for what they are, which is our emotions? We live in difficult times. That would be echoed by, I think, nearly everyone. But if we want to move to a different place, a better place, a more loving and holy place, I think the first step is to take Jesus' words here in the Sermon on the Mount seriously. Can we find it in ourselves truly to love our enemies? Can we drop the expectation that everyone else lives up to what we would have them do? Can we be aware of our emotions and where they come from? And can we acknowledge that by hating we usually only, make it, only end up making things worse and more toxic. At the, at the conclusion of our text for today, Jesus tells the crowd, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word for perfect does not mean to be without flaw. The Greek word for perfect means to be finished or completed. In other words, Jesus is telling the crowd to be mature, loving individuals, as God would have you be in any situation. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The first step is to be aware of our emotions and to see the world in a realistic lens. Then we, can, then we can work to change things for the better without falling into the trap of hatred. Think of how blessed a world that would be. Perhaps someone like me can learn eventually to love the president. I think that would be healthy for me. Then he wouldn't have so much power over me, among other things. Then I could oppose what I disagree with without it destroying my own soul or, importantly, ruining my relationships with people who support him. Maybe there's no other single thing we need, we need more right now to bring about the kingdom of God than this call of Jesus's. As I said, this passage is problematic. But, perhaps because it's so difficult, it's exactly what we need. I know I need it.